Welcome to The Humanist Report. I'm Mike Figueredo. This is our very first episode, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to be here. I want to thank any of you that's watching, all two of you, uh, but hopefully we'll build up our viewer base over the next couple of months. Um, this is going to be a political podcast where I discuss weekly news stories, namely ones in political nature, but I'm also going to cover scientific topics as well as other types of current events that are pretty important to American news. So I'm going to go ahead and just jump right in because uh, I'm really excited here. So we're going to get to the first story. We've got a bunch of great stories for you. We're going to discuss Hillary Clinton and her opinion on the TPP. We're going to discuss uh, Donald Trump as well as Jeb Bush's presidential campaigns. It's going to be really, really interesting, so I advise you to stick around. If you like political dynasties, I've got great news for you. Take a look. Thank you all very much. You know, I always feel welcome at Miami-Dade College. This is a place that welcomes everyone with their hearts set on the future. A place where hope leads to achievement and striving leads to success. For all of us, it is just the place to be in the campaign that begins today. So here's some things that you need to know about Jeb Bush. First and foremost, he's pro-discrimination. Now, he says that the Constitution grants no right to same-sex marriage, and he's in favor of, quote, traditional marriage. Unfortunately for him, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment wholeheartedly disagrees with him. Now, one thing that's interesting is that this also means that he's against his own marriage, because if you're for traditional marriage, well, if we're looking at it from a biblical perspective, then that means that interracial marriages are also probably against the Bible. Jeb Bush is in an interracial marriage. It wasn't until 1968 that the Supreme Court said in Loving v. Virginia that couples of different races could marry. Jeb Bush's wife is Mexican, so it's really interesting that he's taking the stance of traditional marriage. It's very hypocritical, I think. And he needs to acknowledge the fact that his marriage is not necessarily seen as traditional. It's still fairly controversial in certain parts of the country, namely the South. Going further, when it comes to the issue of whether or not businesses should be able to discriminate against gay people, he says that they should if it's based off of religious belief. This is a really dangerous, slippery slope. See, conservatives always talk about the slippery slope with marriage equality. However, this is a real slippery slope. If I say that it's my religious belief to discriminate against African Americans, Latino Americans, or other types of religious groups such as Jewish Americans or even Christian Americans, that's a problem. See, so if you extrapolate this to any other case, then it gets really problematic very, very fast. And again, by his own logic, he should be against his own marriage based off of religious beliefs. So this is why his pro-discrimination stance is extremely... It's problematic, to say the least. Now, moving on, another fact about Jeb is that he's extremely hawkish. Now, 17 of his 21 foreign policy advisors served under George W. Bush, and that includes Paul Wolfowitz. Now, if you've ever heard that name, you're probably going to associate it with the Iraq War, and that's for good reason, because he was probably the number one cheerleader of the Iraq War, and that's really scary. Furthermore, he says, given the intelligence his brother had, he was justified in invading Iraq. This was trumped-up intelligence. So it wasn't real intelligence. So to think that he would be very trigger-happy in terms of going to war just on a whim, I think that's also very scary. He's also in favor of, his, of strengthening the Cuban embargo. Stay classy. This doesn't work. It hasn't worked for 55 years. It's not going to work any further. 
He's also against the Iranian peace deal. Anytime you're against something that has peace in it, the peace deal, and it's legitimately trying to get peace, well, that's, that's just stupid and nonsensical. So he also self-described as an unwavering supporter of Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister. This is scary also because he's a war criminal who's guilty of genocide and apartheid. So you can expect very hawkish policies from a president, Jeb Bush. There's a couple of good things about Jeb Bush. First and foremost, he is in favor of a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. This is a lot more reasonable than a lot of other Republicans. He's also in favor of states' rights when it comes to the issue of pot, although he considers it a bad idea. But I don't care about that. I don't care what he thinks about it. A lot of conservatives are pro-states' rights until it comes to an issue that they don't necessarily want to promote, such as uh, legal weed or same-sex marriage. I don't care either way. I'm for states' rights or national rights if it gets me the policies that I want. But at least he's being consistent here. He can say that he's consistent in this respect. Finally, the most crazy thing about Jeb Bush that you need to know is that he thinks we should repeal Obamacare because of the Apple Watch. Now, this is something that I'm not making up, as hard as that is to believe. He says that the Apple Watch could one day tend to all of our health needs. So a watch on your wrist, I guess that if you download an app, you can just clear yourself of types of diseases such as glaucoma or perhaps cancer. This is really weird and nonsensical, and I don't think he's really, really uh, looked into this issue very much. Maybe he's talking more about the future of technology, but it's something that's scary. I don't think that a watch should replace healthcare. And I don't really think that he does too, but he has to toe the party line and be against Obamacare if he wants to get the nomination. Another contender has entered the GOP race. Guess who? I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. I tell you that. The billionaire businessman Donald Trump made it official today, never shy or modest about why he's running. I don't need anybody's money. I'm using my own money. I'm not using the lobbyists. I'm not using donors. I don't care. I'm really rich. I'll show you that in a second. By any standard, an unusual kickoff speech. When did we beat Japan at anything? Omitting the critical words, except for World War II. Trump was very clear on who he sees as bad and good, starting with the current occupant of the White House. Our president doesn't have a clue. He's a bad negotiator. Trump strayed wildly from his prepared remarks, riffing from topic to topic. Free trade can be wonderful if you have smart people. But we have people that are stupid. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. Nobody would be tougher on ISIS than Donald Trump. He minced no words about fellow Republicans. I mean, you looked at Bush, it took him five days to answer the question on Iraq. He couldn't answer the question, he didn't know. I said, is he intelligent? Then I looked at Rubio. He was unable to answer the question. Is Iraq a good thing or a bad thing? He didn't know. He couldn't answer the question. How are these people going to lead us? Okay, so there's a lot of things that I want to talk about with this video. Uh, but I'll get to something that's really, really, really interesting and embarrassing for Donald Trump. So first and foremost, he says, quote, I'm really rich. Is this a qualification? I mean, does this make you a good leader just because you have money? If so, then I don't know how, please explain. Um, another thing that he says is that he's not going to be taking money from big donors. So what's great is that he's not going to be influenced by the 1%. 
the problem is that he is the 1%. He is a billionaire. He has about $9 billion. As he said, he's really rich. So it doesn't matter that he's not going to take money from lobbyists. He's going to bankroll his own campaign and do just as bad for the country as if he was taking money from lobbyists who want to uh, destroy environmental regulations, who want to destroy workers' regulations and whatnot. So it's interesting that he talks about how there's an influence of money in politics, but yet at the same time, ironically, he's running saying that he's going to bankroll his own campaign. That's pretty ironic. Now, one thing that I think is embarrassing and interesting, too, is that he actually paid people to cheer. Because, I mean, when I first saw the video, I thought it was interesting how many people were sitting there cheering for him. I mean, really loud cheers, but it all makes sense when you read an email that he put out. It says, we are looking to cast people for the event to wear t-shirts and carry signs and help cheer him in support of his announcement. We understand this is not a traditional background job, but we believe acting comes in all forms, and this is inclusive of that school of thought. Now, what was the price that they were paid? $50 per person. <laughs> that is shameful. That's really shameful. When it comes to the question of would I do that for $50? Sure. <laughs> That's embarrassing to admit, but I mean, if, if Donald Trump wanted to pay me 50 bucks to put on a shirt and cheer, I would be as ridiculous as possible. I would be screaming at the top of my lungs because I think it's hilarious. Now, do we actually have to worry about Donald Trump winning? We don't. We don't. Because for one... Well, that's embarrassing. This is worse than the, the little scandal that broke out with Rand Paul using stock photos on his website. But I'm going to read to you a couple of tweets that indicate why he's going to end up just dismissing himself from the election inadvertently. So we're going to have some fun with this. So one of his tweets is, quote, Sorry, losers and haters, but my IQ is one of the highest. And you all know it. Please don't feel stupid or insecure. It's not your fault. <laughs> Thank you, Donald. How merciful of you. Another tweet from Donald Trump. Money was never a big motivation for me, except as a way to keep score. The real excitement is playing the game. I don't know what that means. I really don't know what that means. So if you do, comment below and tell me because I don't get it. Maybe it's because I have such a low IQ and Donald Trump has such a high IQ that when he communicates these tweets, it just goes right over my head. I don't know. Now, another tweet. My Twitter has become so powerful that I can actually make my enemies tell the truth. No, when, when you read that, you think that he's going to say, I can make my enemies disappear, but it's just, I can make my enemies tell the truth. Well, okay. Again, I don't really know what that means. No examples, no nothing. Uh, moving on. This one's a good one. The concept of global warming was created by... <laughs> Sorry. The concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese in order to make U.S. manufacturing non-competitive. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what any of this means. Again, it's probably just going right over my head because I'm stupid and he's smart. He adds to global warming in another tweet. This very expensive global warming bullshit has got to stop. Our planet is freezing. Record low temperatures and our global warming scientists are stuck in ice. Whoa! You, you don't read the news at all, do you? This is, or 2014 was the hottest recorded year ever. Now, when it comes to 2015, the first couple of months were already the hottest in recorded history. We're breaking records, Donald Trump. You're not paying attention. So maybe you're super smart, but you gotta pay attention, buddy. That's part of the, uh, that comes with being intellectual. So another one, he says, I am being proven right. 
about massive vaccinations. The doctors lied. Save our children and their future. Okay, well, you can save your children if you vaccinate them. You're exposing them to measles if you don't and other types of viruses. So that's just stupid. I don't even... I can't even laugh about that one. That's just dumb. Now, my favorite one of all is this one. <laughs> Amazing how the haters and losers keep tweeting the name <laughs> Fuckface Von Clownstick like they are so original and like no one else is doing it. <laughs> if you guys don't know, this is a name that Jon Stewart gave to Donald Trump. So the fact that it really caught on, it just, it warms my heart. I think it's hilarious. And the fact that he acknowledged it is awesome. It's really awesome. Now, the final tweet. As everybody knows, quote, but the haters and the losers refuse to acknowledge, I do not wear a wig. My hair may be perfect, maybe, uh, may not be perfect, excuse me, but it's mine. Donald, I don't think anybody's saying that you wear a wig. We know what you're doing. You're growing out like a flap in the back, and then you're flipping it over your head. It doesn't look like a wig. It would probably look like a mullet if you combed it all backwards. We know that's not a wig. I don't know who's saying it's a wig, but it's very clear that you're doing an epic comb over. But I don't care about that. That's ad hominem. What we should attack him for is the substance of his policy positions. But the fact of the matter is that he doesn't really have any. He doesn't know about politics. He's got money. He's bored. So he's doing this to get attention. So I think we should have some more fun. I want to know what your Donald Trump campaign slogan is. This was trending on Twitter a couple of days ago, and I want to kind of keep this going because I think it's hilarious. I love it. I love the fact that he's running. This is brilliant. It's great for uh, TV, and it's going to make the GOP clown car even that much more clowny, if you can say that. So comment below what his slogan should be. Hillary Clinton recently came out against the TPP, kind of. But I'll tell you what she really thinks about it in a minute. Watch this. The president should listen to and work with his allies in Congress, starting with Nancy Pelosi, who have expressed their concerns about the impact that a weak agreement would have on our workers to make sure we get the best, strongest deal possible. And if we don't get it, there should be no deal. And there are some specifics in there that could and should be changed. So I am hoping that's what happens now. Let's take the lemons and turn it into lemonade. You sure. voted yes to the president's trade proposal. It went down to defeat. Um, Clinton, Mrs. Clinton seemed to blame that on President Obama's negotiating skills. Is she right? Was that the problem? Well, I think what we have to do is uh, spend some more time talking with members and really going through the details, both of the trade adjustment assistance legislation, which will provide, which is the legislation that provides assistance to workers who are displaced as the result of trade agreements, and the trade promotion authority, the fast track authority legislation, which is the up or down vote uh, law that uh, delegates Congress's authority to the president to negotiate trade agreements. There are some de details that still need to be negotiated and discussed. I think we'll be doing that over the next several days if, uh, and weeks. And, well, uh, and hopefully we're going to be able to come to some agreement. Was it President Obama's fault for not negotiating early right with balance. Democrats? Was it President's uh, inability to negotiate with his fellow Democrats you know, that doomed this trade proposal, at least for now? 
Carol, the president has been negotiating not only with uh, Democrats, but with Republicans as well. He's made you know, his cabinet officials available. Uh, you know, all of us have had an opportunity to go in as members of Congress and review the text of the agreement. We've had classified briefings. We've had briefings in our, in our caucus meetings. There's been a lot of opportunity for members to take a look at this and for members to interact with administration officials and the president himself and ask questions. So uh, we, we need to do more of that for sure because this is complex. It's not easy. So now there's a couple of quotes that I want to get to from uh, Hillary Clinton. Now, first and foremost, she says, quote, the president should listen to and work with his allies in Congress, starting with Nancy Pelosi, who have expressed their concerns about the impact of a weak agreement would have on our workers and to make sure that we get the strongest deal possible. She also says, quote, there are some specifics in there that could and should be changed. Now she also says, quote, let's take the lemons and turn them into lemonade. So right off the bat, this is, this is rhetoric that's extremely vague. She's kind of coming out against it, but not really because presumably if she's elected, then she's gonna wanna do a similar type of trade deal. She says that we should change some, but we don't really know what that means. One thing that kind of also caught me, not necessarily with respect to Hillary Clinton, is the CNN host there. She didn't necessarily blame the failure of the TPP on any substantive issue. Negotiating had absolutely nothing to do with it. Obama is a very effective negotiator. We saw that with Obamacare. When it comes to the issue of trade, however, it's not because he didn't negotiate effectively. It's because if you look at the bill, whatever we can see so far, that is, you'll see that there's really some huge problems in it. I'll just throw a couple out there. First and foremost, it's being done in secret. Furthermore, if this trade deal does pass, it's going to ship countless American jobs overseas. Now, trade isn't necessarily something that's inherently evil. It's something that I think is necessary, but the problem is that this trade deal is bad. Why is it that he's pushing for this and why is it that the Republicans are pushing for it? Well, the problem is that they're trying to appease their co corporate donors. Why would a corporation want this type of trade deal? Well, if we ship American jobs overseas, then we can just hire a company in Malaysia or China and they could just do it for pennies on the dollar. And maybe even they could just enslave people as there's actually slaves in Malaysia, which is another point. But I mean, wouldn't it save labor for these corporations if they can ship our jobs overseas? Well, of course it would. That's why they want it. And seeing that corporations bankroll President Obama and a lot of these Republicans' campaigns, well, obviously that's why they're in favor of it. So another problem with it is that it undermines American sovereignty. Corporations can actually sue states over their own domestic laws if it, if it hinders them in any way, if, if they don't like it. And guess who's setting it up? Well, it's going to be the World Bank who's going to be doing this. So obviously, they're not necessarily the most objective international entity. So this is very, very problematic. Another problem with the trade deal is who's included in it. If you look at our business partners, well, they're going to be Brunei, which recently implemented Sharia law, and also Malaysia, as I mentioned, who is actually guilty of slavery. Now, when it comes to Hillary Clinton's stance and why she thinks there's some things that we should change, well, you'll see that that's not really the case. CNN did a really great uh, story where they pulled up 45 instances where she actually pushed the TPP. I'll have a couple quotes for you right here. So, first of all, she says, quote, We are making progress toward finalizing a far-reaching new trade agreement called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The so-called TPP will lower barriers, raise standards, and drive long-term growth across the region. 
It will cover 40% of the world's total trade and establish strong protections for workers and the environment. Yeah, right. Better jobs with higher wages and safer working conditions, including women, migrant workers, and others too often in the past excluded from the formal economy, will help build Asia's middle class and rebalance the economy, or the global economy. No, that's not true at all, because corporations who are pushing this, they have a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value. So if overthrowing these uh, environmental regulations are going to be a burden to them, then yeah, they're going to do it and they're going to try to sue. That's that's why they're pushing it so hard. Another quote from her, she says, Over time, we hope to deliver a groundbreaking ag agreement that connects countries as diverse as Peru and Vietnam with America and Australia to create a new free trade zone that can galvanize commerce, competition, and growth across the entire Pacific region. So this, along with the 43 other instances where she pushed for the TPP, really illustrate that Hillary Clinton... She's not taking a principled stand on this. It probably took weeks and weeks and weeks for her campaign crew to come up with a response to this. And it's just pathetic. It's really, really pathetic because she can't actually tell us what she really feels. I know that she really is in favor of it, but she's not going to tell us that. She's going to kind of, eh, I'm going to hedge a little. I'm going to say, sure, I'm, I'm for it a little bit. I'm against it. Some could be changed, but I'm not going to tell you what. It's just a typical politician move. And it's the reason why I really think that Hillary Clinton comes, comes off as disingenuine. A new poll shows that Bernie Sanders is catching up with Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. So according to the Morning Consult, Bernie trails just 12 points behind Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. And this is a very, very important primary state. So currently, she's sitting at 44 points, whereas Bernie Sanders is sitting at 32. Now, of course, she still has a pretty big lead, but it, this really speaks to the fact that Bernie Sanders is able to galvanize the people because he's a very, very strong public speaker, I think. Some people critique him and says, say that he's not necessarily very charismatic, but I think he is because if you really pay attention to the substance of his policies, well, then it makes sense and it speaks to most voters because most of his policy positions are overwhelmingly in favor with the American people. We haven't really had a candidate like that since a really long time, maybe perhaps candidate Obama, but as we've seen, he's taken a completely different route. Uh, the reason why I think this is occurring is because with Hillary Clinton, we get these watered-down, more vanilla proposals. While she thinks that maybe we should allow students to refinance their student loans, while Bernie Stan Sanders thinks that it should just be free, while Hil Hillary Clinton thinks maybe we should expand health care. I'm not necessarily saying that's her, her stance. I think she supports Obamacare. Well, Bernie Sanders thinks we should have universal health care. So if you just really want to go the extra mile and elect a candidate who's really going for the American people, then that guy is Bernie Sanders. Now, unfortunately, even though he's catching up to Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire, he's still got quite a ways to go in other states. So if we look at Iowa, Hillary is 54 points to Bernie's 12. That's huge. Moving on to South Carolina, it's even a little bit more dismal. Hillary Clinton has 56 points to Bernie's 10 points. So... Make no mistake, he has a lot of work to do, but the fact that he's able to come from way behind and almost catch up to her in New Hampshire, well, it speaks volumes to his populist message. Why is it that Hillary is currently leading just so far? Well, it's name recognition. A lot of people don't even know who Bernie Sanders is. Uh, our friend David Pakman and Lewis, they did a video about how one person thought that Bernie Sanders was actually a Republican, even though this individual indicated that she's very much progressive. So once he gets his message out there, I think that it's really going to take foot. Now, there's also some other reasons why I think that we should not really discount Bernie Sanders. 
first and foremost, he has grassroots support. If you look at his campaign events, well, thousands of people are showing up, more so than some of the other events. If you heard about the Rick Santorum event, only two people showed up, or no, it was one person, although two other people showed up later, and he called it a success. No, that's not a success. That's an that's a overwhelming, epic failure. Now, another reason is that he raised more money than establishment Republicans in the first 24 hours of his campaign. $1.5 million exactly, which is crazy. That's more than Marco Rubio, uh, Ren Paul, and Ted Cruz. So this is a guy who he really has the public behind him. And I think that we're going to start to see more and more stories that he's beginning to catch up to Hillary Clinton. And he's really going to give her a run for, his, run for her money. Now, do I think that Bernie Sanders can actually get the nomination? I do. I do. Because if you look at early polling, President or candidate Obama, that is, he was way behind Hillary. But he started to catch up slowly but surely. Now, to be fair, he wasn't as far behind as Bernie Sanders is. However, Bernie Sanders has a really great message and he's sticking to the substance of policies. He's not in it for the ad hominem attacks. He's not in this because he just thinks it's his turn. He's in this because he actually cares. He's taking a principled stance. When it comes to Hillary Clinton, I don't know what her stance is. You see, when it comes to the TPP, well, apparently she's against it, but she she didn't really issue a, a declaration against it that was unequivocal. It was kind of, eh, kind of against it now. I, I guess I'm against it. But you know it took weeks for her to really calculate what her response should be. So instead of waiting to see what his response is to a particular policy issue, he's just going to tell you. He's going to be forward with you. He's a really genuine candidate. Whereas that's not the case with Hillary Clinton, and that's not the case with any of the other GOP contenders. So I think that uh, Bernie Sanders has a real shot, and this is a good, a good indication that that's going to be the case. Now again, as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be a really tough battle, but I think Bernie Sanders can do it. We just got to get behind him. We got to support uh, him. You can go to berniesanders.com and donate to his campaign. Even five bucks is going to help because this is really a grassroots effort. If you want a non-establishment candidate, if you want someone who's going to get money out of politics, you've got to support Bernie Sanders. And even a buck, if you could just donate one dollar, then I think that's better than nothing. Larry King recently interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he had some really interesting things to say about climate change. Take a look. Why isn't it raining in California? Yeah, you know, uh, the climate is... I mean, drought, it's, not like, it's not as though droughts have no precedent in the history of the world. Uh, but what's more important than that it's not raining is there, you know, there's a consumption of clean water, potable water, from the water table that's not being replenished, and it's being pulled out at a faster rate than it's returning. And that's a recipe for disaster. And so, so we need to think more sort of, dare I use the word, holistically, about systems that, that, that manifest on this earth. And, and, and that's a relatively new way to think about the world. But what do we do about it? Stumped, huh? Yeah, I don't, I don't have easy answers. I think we need to be better shepherds of our activities and our behaviors. If you're watering lawn, your lawn, do you need clean, potable water to water your lawn? No. You could use the water that came out of your dishwasher. Your, your grass is not going to care. But we've set up a system that does not intelligently use even the limited water that's available. Bigger question, why isn't it raining? All I can tell you is that in the world, what we're going to find is more extremes of weather. 
Okay, when it rains, it's going to rain heavier. When it's not going to rain, it's going to rain less than it ever didn't rain before. And as these extreme, we have to, that's kind of the new normal. We're going to have to grow accustomed to. And all evidence points to the fact that it is human-caused influence on the ecosystem, on the on the climactic system. So cold weather will get colder, warm weather will get warmer, wet weather will get wetter. Yeah, yeah. So the extremes, you'll start visiting the extremes. And what happens is, as as the as the temperature rises, you more moisture from the ocean gets lifted into the atmosphere. And generally, when we think of weather, we think of storms and things. And so now that when you have a storm, there's more moisture to feed that storm. There's more heating to drive the convective cells. And so the storm gets more ferocious. And, and you know, we had flooding down here in New York. By the way, this change that people are talking about, it's not one day the ocean will just sort of come in and stay there on your doorstep. No, that's not how it happens first. It happens first where there would be a storm where there'd be a tide surge, and previously the tide surge never really, you know, maybe came over the sidewalk or the boardwalk, but that was about it and went away. Now the tide surge makes it into the streets. And that's your first indication. These extremes are, are your first encounter with what will soon be, become the new normal. So this is something that's really scary and it's a consequence of climate change that's really been right in front of us, but I think we've all been pretty oblivious to it, not necessarily because of our own fault, but because the media is not really paying attention to it. So if you look at the Texas and Oklahoma uh, weather conditions right now, they're setting records for rainfall. If you look at California, they're setting, uh, or setting records in terms of drought. This is really, really terrifying. It's really terrifying because it's going to get worse than this. This isn't necessarily even the top yet. There's going to be a lot more consequences that we don't even know about when it comes to global anthropogenic climate change. Now, the problem is that the media is not covering climate change, and right now, citizens are about 50-50, about 50%, according to a lot of polls, I'm, I'm kind of uh, uh, speculating here for the most part, but from what I've seen, about 50% of citizens think climate change is an issue, and, and the other 50% think that it's not an issue. Now, when you look at media coverage, ABC and Fox basically gave no coverage to it. CBS and MSNBC, well, they did about 45 segments in 2013, but seeing that this is such a huge prevalent issue and it has implications for the entire globe, I don't think that 45 segments is going to suffice. Now, when you go to which Sunday shows, uh, which individuals they had on their show to discuss climate change, well, 50% were politicians, 45% were media figures, and the majority of the politicians were Republicans. Where's the scientists? See, it's, it's, it's a lot easier for the mainstream media to just throw on any politician and let him espouse, let him or her, that is, espouse their opinion on climate change. But the problem is that we need real scientists to discuss this because this is a huge issue. Although public, Republicans now say that, yeah, it is the case that the climate is changing, well, they still don't agree with the notion of anthropogenic climate change, which just means that it's man-made or the majority of it is man-made. This is extremely problematic. The media's job is to fact check. Their job is to give us the facts and let us know the problems that face our society. But the problem is that they're not doing it. They're allowing these Republicans mostly to get on and toe the party line, and that's very problematic. Now, I'm not just being one-sided here. Even when it comes to Democrats, should they be on to talk about climate change? No, they shouldn't. Unless they're proposing legislation that's going to do something about it, then they shouldn't be on. We should be hearing from the scientists, and they should be discussing these issues because... This isn't something that's going to affect us 50 years, 100 years down the line. 
The consequences are happening right now. A lot of people kind of have that false sense in their mind that, well, it's going to be, you know, Florida's going to be underwater, and in the future it's going to, it's going to impact agriculture disproportionately, albeit because, I mean, some places such as Canada may actually benefit from warmer weather. But that's, the, that's in the future, you know, we could worry about it then. Well, no, that's not the case. I think that this segment really demonstrates that climate change is a huge issue and we have to take, we have to take charge right now. But if you heard from the G7 leaders at the last summit, they agreed to get off of fossil fuels by 2100. 2100. You see, the problem is that even if we stop emitting CO2 right now, just 100%, if we just stop, well, that's not going to mitigate the consequences of climate change. So now we've waited so long to do anything that not only do we have to focus on mitigation, we also have to focus on adaptation because this is really going to be problematic. It's not just climate change. There's a ton of things that are happening as a result. There's uh, ocean acidification, desertification. This is all really problematic. This is a multifaceted issue, and if we don't really take charge right now and do anything, then it's going to be very, very, very... It's going to be a sad future, man, and I don't even know if uh, the really strongest effects, such as uh, states such as Florida, being underwater is going to be the worst of it. There's going to be mass migrations and whatnot, and these are just some of the consequences that we know about. There's so many other consequences that are probably going to come to fruition that it's really scary, so we have to do something. Reddit user HackB404 posted a brilliant video that I think showcases pretty much everything wrong with the media when it comes to mass shootings. Take a look. Tonight at 10, a mass shooting at a school in Germany leaves 16 people dead. Yes, because on the same day as the peace demonstration, a lone maniac in Germany went berserk with a gun, killing 16 people. This senseless tragedy provided material for news reports for days to follow. First, there were the initial dramatic breakdowns detailing precisely how the carnage unfolded. There was grim, voyeuristic mobile phone footage of the gunman's last moments and a chilling reconstruction of a warning he apparently posted on the internet. He typed these words. Everybody's laughing at me. No one sees my potential. I'm serious. Which later turned out to be almost certainly false, incidentally. The aftermath in Vinoden proved so compelling for the vulture-like rolling news stations, they even filled airtime showing things that weren't happening yet. Two days later, even footage from an old ping-pong tournament in which the back of the gunman's head was vaguely visible was still considered news. The latest pictures of Kretschmer show him playing table tennis, his favourite sport. And three days later, even worse footage pixelated to the point where it looked like a broadcast from the f***ing Lego dimension. Well, that was considered news too. In the video, Kretschmer is shown taking part in an arm wrestling contest in Rottenburg last year. Yeah, I think if I squint, I can just about make out the face of a killer. Isn't the news brilliant? Repeatedly showing us a killer's face isn't news, it's just rubbernecking. And what's more, this sort of coverage only serves to turn this murdering little twat into a sort of nihilistic pin-up boy. One thing the news kept plaintively asking was why this had happened. Why? What had triggered in the mind of a seemingly normal teenager such fury and alienation? Well, if you want to know why, why not ask a forensic psychiatrist? We've had 20 years of mass murders, throughout which I have repeatedly told CNN and our other media, if you don't want to pro propagate more mass murders, don't start the story with sirens blaring. The school day had only just begun when the attacker struck. Don't have photographs of the killer. The 17-year-old's three-hour rampage ended in his own death. Don't make this 24-7 coverage. 
The German Chancellor is about to give her reaction. We'll bring that to you live. Do everything you can not to make uh, the body count the lead story. Carnage in the classroom, 16 people are dead. Not to make the killer some kind of anti-hero. Dressed in black combat gear, the gunman opened fire at random. Do localize this story to the affected community and make it as boring as possible in every other market. Because every time we have intense saturation coverage of a mass murder, we expect to see one or two more within a week. But, but so let me just start by saying that I'm probably not going to cover these types of videos very often. One, because while they're not too political in nature, although there are some underlying political implications to these types of events, and uh, two, because I don't really want to shine a spotlight on these people. They're sick, and they really seek attention. So when the media flashes their face on and talks about them all day, they're an, they're an instant celebrity. They get what they want. They get that fame, and it's sickening. Now, this is a terrorist, and I... This is a terrorist attack and a hate crime, but the media isn't necessarily paying attention to the more terrorist aspect. This guy clearly had political motivations, and it's sickening that he went and uh, he targeted African Americans. He clearly was against them. But again, I don't want to talk about this guy because I don't want to give him what he wants. So here's what I'll say about this. So one, I don't think we should ever show the killer's face. That whole debacle where the uh, the Boston bomber was on the Rolling Stone cover, that was sickening. Because even though they may have been condemning his actions, whatever the case may be, well, he looked like a rock star on the cover. You gave him what he wanted. He's He was doing it because he thinks that he's right. And when you glorify it, inadvertently nonetheless, but you're still glorifying it and you're doing exactly what he wants. So sure, the media needs to report on it, but they need to report on it and then move on. We can't keep dwelling on it. Oh well, there's a new, there's a new, um, a new fact that came out that he was into this or he was into that. We got his friend on the line. No, we need to not dwell on it. We need to report on it, and we need to just move on. But the problem is that the media really does benefit. They make money off of sensationalizing these types of issues, and that's sickening. That's really sickening because whenever these types of events happen. They're going to be raking in a lot of cash because people are going to be really, really interested in it. Because what is the media really? Well, it's a war for eyeballs. And these types of stories, they really get eyeballs to the screen. There is, however, an upshot to this type of coverage. So it could potentially galvanize public pressure. So after the Newtown shootings, there was a lot of public pressure to pass universal background checks. But ultimately, it failed. So even though public pressure is very important it's not really going to hold much weight in today's society because our Congress is corrupt. Make no mistake about it. They don't answer to us. We still vote for them, but they answer to their donors. You see, what we live in is currently a competitive oligarchy. Sure, we're still technically a democracy by democratic standards. We vote. The elections are free and fair. But we don't have any influence on policy. A study in 2014 by Dr. Gillens and Page found out that the influence of the American people is zero. It's zero. If you look at the regression model in their study, you'll see that uh, public special interests, that is, uh, billionaires, corporations, they have all the say. They have all the access. We can't donate $5 to our favorite politician's campaign and then get access. That's not going to buy us access. They're looking for the big money, but not that big because, I mean, you could pretty much buy a politician with 5000 bucks. So, again, to get back to the main point, we shouldn't necessarily... 
cover these types of topics. We should just report them from a factual, objective stance. Don't mention the shooter. Maybe provide very vague details about it. But more than that, we shouldn't do it. Of course, it could galvanize the public, but in this state, that's not going to make much sense because our lawmakers aren't going to do much about it. So what we really need to do is just play it down. Play it down. Don't sensationalize it. So that way it doesn't happen again, as the doctor said in the video that I posted. According to a new Gallup poll, confidence in religion has at an all-time low. 42% of Americans have, quote, either a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in church and organized religion. This is down four points from 2013, and it's down 11 points from 10 years ago. So this is a pretty big jump. Now, when you control for religious sect, the lowest for Catholics was 39% in 2007. So there was a point in time where they actually had less confidence in their religion. Now, I believe that around the 2007 point was when there was a lot of scandals with sex abuse in the church. So that could have been something that had affected the confidence level in religion. I don't know if they controlled for that or not, but this is interesting. So the general trend since 1973 has been negative when you take the whole sample. Now, when it comes to the implications, Gallup writes, poor behavior on the part of some religious leaders has caused serious self-inflicted wounds for the church and organized religion, damaging its image among Protestants and Catholics as well as among non-Christians. Now, at the same time, the nation is becoming less Christian and less religious, and those outside of Christianity naturally view the church with less respect. Any progress that organized religion can make in restoring confidence among the faithful may, ha may help excuse me, stabilize its numbers and perhaps soften other skepticism. So my problem with it is that even though the margin of error is less than 4%, the samples are actually pretty small. So they only had 309 Catholics and 796 Protestants. Now, it's probably the case that this is actually representative of the general population, uh, given the 4% margin of error. But I'd still really like to see larger samples. I trust Gallup. I should say that 100%. I do trust Gallup, and I think that their polls are phenomenal. I like their methodology. However, I would prefer a larger sample, because mainly if you look at the overall trend, even though it is negative, it still really jumps quite a bit. So I think that Maybe if we get larger sample sizes, maybe that would change. I'm not 100% sure on that. But I think this is really interesting, and it speaks to the fact that a lot of people are moving away from organized religion. Even if you are religious and you believe in God, you may not necessarily identify with a particular religion. I actually know quite a bit of people like that who they actually do have a belief in God, but they don't claim to be a Christian or they don't claim to be a Muslim. They do believe in God, and they'll state that they'll argue with you to the death, but they're not going to identify with their particular religion. Now, I think it's because of the internet. I mean, we're moving away from religion and becoming more secular because we're exposed to a lot more ideas, so we don't necessarily just have to accept some of the more draconian or morally bankrupt propositions from the Bible or the Quran or, or whatever your holy book may be. So this is something that I think is an interesting trend that's going to continue. I mean, millennials are the most or actually the least religious generation ever. So we're going to see this trend continue, and it's going to get to the point where maybe in 50 years, religion is going to be on this last thread, at least in the U.S. Iranian clergyman Hamad Vasfi is part of a campaign that has teamed up with the fundamentalist Ansar al-Hezbollah group to maintain the ban on women attending soccer games. He says, quote, The presence of women in stadiums is against the laws of Sharia, and all religious authorities have issued edicts on this. 
he adds that their presence, quote, promotes prostitution and leads to moral corruption. We have examples. Pictures published from women in stadiums clearly show this. My first thoughts is that this dude is clearly delusional, but I don't think he necessarily believes what he's saying. We see this type of rhetoric espoused all throughout the MENA region. If you go to Saudi Arabia, uh, a bunch of women were protesting the driving ban, and they were uploading videos of themselves doing it to YouTube. And one of the Saudi clerics actually said that if women drive, it's going to destroy their ovaries because I guess the car pushes their bodies forward, and so it'll make them so they can't have kids. So that's why we shouldn't allow them to drive. Um, nobody believes him, and I think it's probably the case that most Iranians don't believe what he's saying, because if you look at the Iranian youth, they're actually quite progressive, comparatively, throughout the region. Uh, so, one thing that's great, though, about this story is that 500 women will be allowed to attend, according to VP of Women's Affairs. So, this has been an ongoing issue in Iran since probably the revolution, and... Iran has a very distinct his history of repression, and if you look at some of the women's rights movements, or one particular issue that they're rallying against, it's bad hijab. So women in Iran right now, if their uh, hijab is pushed too far back and you can see too much of their forehead, well, they can actually go to jail because that's considered haram. And this is something that's just really ridiculous because, I mean, you may do that inadvertently. And... Further on, it's stupid. It's just a stupid law. So these types of laws, they can't stand, and I'm really glad that there is actually a strong women's rights movement in Iran fighting back against this preposterous type of, not only laws, but the rhetoric as well, because they've been very effective at getting out their campaign message. A lot of women will start hashtag campaigns on Twitter or upload videos of themselves to YouTube telling their stories. So I'm really glad that the uh, Iranians, mostly Iranian youth, are fighting back against this. We're not living in the dark ages. This is clearly a draconian law, and it's something that just needs to be abolished. But I'm glad that women are being allowed to attend the soccer game. It shouldn't even be an issue. In a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court comes out against specialty plates in Texas. Uh, now, this plate in this particular case involved the Confederate flag. What's really interesting about this case is that Justice Clarence Thomas actually joined with the four liberal justices to strike this down. Now, Justice Stephen Breyer writes, Indeed, a person who displays a message on a Texas license plate likely intends to convey to the public that the state has endorsed that message. If not, the individual could simply display the message in question in larger letters on a bumper sticker right next to the plate. So, if the state creates it, is this a tacit endorsement of it? I would actually say yes, I agree with them. I'm an individual who I would identify as a free speech absolutist. However, this isn't necessarily a case of free speech for the individual. That person can still put a Confederate bumper sticker on their car, which, not very classy, but I mean, that individual does have the right to do it. I think that this is more akin to putting the, uh, the Ten Commandments in front of court cases and whatnot. It is seen as a tacit endorsement, and if you do endorse this, then you have to endorse other problematic things, and it can get really, really gross. The state is going to have to endorse uh, Ku Klux Klan license plates and whatnot. So I actually do agree with the majority opinion in this. This is different from other cases. So you might compare it to Texas v. Johnson, which is the case where the Supreme Court ruled that desecration of the flag is protected speech. Or you may, al may also compare it to Brandenburg v. Ohio, which says that inflammatory speech is prote protected 
only if it does not incite lawless action. So this isn't something that necessarily prohibits their free speech. I mean, you can't get the state and coerce the state into putting something on a license plate that is against their values. This is much different from uh, a lot of other cases, so you can't really compare it to desecration of the flag and whatnot, because it's not a free speech issue like that. It's a matter of whether or not the state can endorse the Confederate flag, and I would say no. However, they also have license plates with eagles that say, God bless America. See, this is problematic because according to the First Amendment, the government cannot endorse religion. And if you do allow people to get God Bless America on their license plates, if they get that specialty plate that is endorsed and created by the state, well, this is a tacit endorsement of religion. So I agree with the fact that the state shouldn't be tacitly endorsing Confederate flags by allowing them on specialty plates, but on the same token, you have to be consistent. You can't allow religion on these specialty tags because... The First Amendment says that the government cannot establish a religion. So because of this, well, they gotta do away with those as well. As of 2020, Alexander Hamilton will no longer be on the $20 bill because a woman is actually set to replace him finally! So this is phenomenal news. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew says, quote, America's currency is a way for our nation to make a statement about who we are and what we stand for. Our paper bills and the images of great American leaders and symbols they depict have long been a way for us to honor our past and express our values. Now, the problem is that a woman's not actually going to be on the $10 bill until 2020, but nonetheless, this is progress, and I like it. I like that women are getting more representation, especially in this respect, because there's a lot of really great women who are worthy enough to be on a $10 bill and other bills too. I would like to take it a step further and add them on more bills, but again, this is a phenomenal start. So the woman on 20s poll had a couple of top picks. One of them was Harriet Tubman, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was the other, Rosa Parks, Wilma Mankiller. These are all really popular among respondents. I think that these are great choices, but this is going to be really hard because there's there's a ton of women. There's a ton of women that really deserve to be on the $10 bill. It's it's nice to really uh, to win for a change, at least in one respect. So hashtag the new 10 started trending almost immediately after the story was announced. So I am really curious actually to know what woman you think should be on the $10 bill. I have no idea. I think that these are some really great picks. Harriet Tubman would be phenomenal because this is kind of an... This is a, a double win because we have an intersectional identity here. We have a woman and a minority. So that would be great. Uh, but there's also some great choices. I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt, Rosa Parks, these are all really, really phenomenal women who are deserving of it. So I'm really curious to hear what you think. Please comment down below and uh, let me know what you think. Welcome to the Weekly Roundup, where I go over stories that I missed over the last week. First of all... Take a look at this video of this disgusting pastor talking about how he hopes that Caitlyn Jenner dies. And people are, and then, and then people are like, oh, we need to pray for him that he finds Jesus. No. No. I'm gonna pray that he dies and goes to hell. Right. Are you serious? I hope, I, listen to me, I hate him with a perfect hatred. Amen. I have no love, no love for this Bruce freak. I hope he dies today. I hope he dies and goes to hell. He's Amen. disgusting. He's filthy. He's reprobate. And I would pray all these prayers from Psalm 69. And so, oh, how could you say that? Well, how did God say it? I don't even know what to say to that, but I think that Steve Harvey takes the words right out of my mouth. 
What's his moral barometer? Where is it at? It's nowhere. Moving on, the Pope issued a new encyclical on climate change saying, quote, The earth, our home, is beginning to look more and more like an immense pile of filth. He adds, Doomsday predictions can no longer be met with irony and disdain. And he called for, quote, a bold cultural revolution. Now, this outraged conservatives a lot, and this was their collective response. Tide goes in, tide goes out. You can't explain that. So the TPP, once again, is back from the dead. That's right. Today, the House passed a clean trade promotion authority bill, which would grant Obama fast-track authority. I don't know how many times we're going to kill this bill and it's going to come back from the dead, but here's my feelings on it. No, 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 no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. On a more serious note, Aizia Bibi, a Pakistani woman, was sentenced to death for blasphemy. So NGOs, such as Amnesty International, they have put pressure on the regime, but really to no avail. What we need, I think, is the international community to come out and condemn these types of cases. There's also the Raif Badawi case in Saudi Arabia, where that blogger was arrested for calling for free speech for atheists. These cases are disgusting, and... It's terrible for human rights, and it's time that the international community, including the United States, come out and condemn them. It doesn't matter if Saudi Arabia is our oil, oil butt buddies. I think it's time for us to really come out strong for human rights and strong for free speech, even in these authoritarian regimes. That's our show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm still kind of ironing out the format. I'm still a little bit awkward, obviously. So I think that over time, uh, this podcast is really going to evolve into something that I think is going to be great. I don't know if it's going to be successful. I don't know if it's going to be an epic failure. Um, if it is, then I'm going to at least try to have fun and really hope that you guys have fun as well and enjoy listening. Uh, I hope that maybe you've learned something or feel more informed. Uh, if you have any suggestions, then please comment down below because I'm definitely open to constructive criticism. So thank you all for watching. I'll see you next week.